Sir Valper and the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, live on tape from uh, from the press box, actually, at uh, Milwaukee's Miller Park, as I record this introduction. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is prospect writer for Fangraphs, recently returned to those electronic pages, Brian Smith. Despite his relative youth, uh, only 26 years old, uh, Brian has actually left and returned to prospect writing a number of times. He has, uh, at different uh, times, written for Baseball Prospectus, uh, Baseball Analyst, Baseball America, Fangraphs, uh, and he's also covered the draft for MLB.com. And what follows, we discuss uh, not only uh, certain prospects he's been covering uh, in his new column for Fangraphs, the Rated Rookies column, a bi-weekly review of the league's uh, rookies and their development. We look not only at some names from that, uh, but we spend a lot of time getting to understand what might compel someone like Brian first to venture into the prospect writing fold and then to leave it, uh, and then uh, really to leave it more times than Silvio Berlusconi has left the Italian prime ministership. Uh, and so with that uh, joke about Berlusconi having been shoehorned into this introduction, I believe it's time to uh, turn to my conversation. Uh, it is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature prospect writer Brian Smith, and it begins right now. I guess you're a Bulls. You seem to be a Bulls fan. Yeah, definitely. I'm a big, big Bulls fan. I'm not like, you know, baseball. I sort of the more I wrote, the less I was a fan of the Cubs and stuff. But in other sports, it's definitely, you know, all Chicago. I'm sort of the radio call-in fan in the other sports. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually interesting. You mentioned that already because I know that was kind of like that's what I wanted to do. When my wife and I moved to Wisconsin, I had no ties to Wisconsin. Yeah. There was no reason for me to use any sort of the very limited analytical skills that I, you know, picked up or developed as, you know, writing about baseball or thinking about other sports. I said, I'm going to watch. I I never followed college football. Um, Yeah. And I said, I'm just going to cheer for Wisconsin because my wife's going there. We're going to be in Madison. And of course, if you live in a place, it's like. You know, it's great to cheer for the local teams just because you you feel like you're participating in something. And yet, it's just like I I found I wanted to, but then like, so you probably know this because you're from Big Ten land. Wisconsin has like such a running heavy attack, and then especially when they had when they had Russell Wilson, and yet they were still running the ball. You know, like sixty five percent of their plays. (laughs) It was it was really frustrating. Yeah, I bet. But you're able to divorce yourself from from some of that 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 instinct when you're watching the Bulls. You think? Yeah, I think. I mean, I like sort of the sabermetric movement in basketball or whatever. But I sort of I experience that from such an outside perspective. And then when I'm like able to watch the games, it's just all about just being just being a fan with it and screaming at the TV. And it, it's fun to get away from actually having to think about it like it's an exercise. Right. Okay. All right. That's good. So, so what you, so you're from, where are you from? Are you from, now listen, I want to make it very clear. I make no, uh, I, I have no, uh, I make no judgments about being from the suburbs. So I'm going to ask you this question, but I'm just asking for informational purposes. Are you from the city proper or are you from outside the city? No, I'm from the suburbs, the western suburbs. So, um, Naperville's sort of the biggest town near where I'm from. 
Okay, yeah. Now, I have a good friend from, again, I had not spent, previous, uh, uh, previous to moving to, to Madison, I had not spent a lot of time in the Midwest, but I have a, a friend from Schaumburg. Is that at all near where you're from? Yeah, a little bit. It's a little north of me, but it's sort of just that same amount west. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So my I'll dad go. used to my my dad used to live kind of by there, and he had uh, he bought for one season season tickets to the Schaumburg Flyers. They're they're independent league teams. So yeah, right. That's front that's Frontier League, right? Yeah. Is that, is that yeah? Well, I I was looking recently. There are two leagues that are around the area, I think, but I think the Frontier League has the big presence. Yeah. Um, and there are a bunch of teams. Uh, in the Frontier League now that are, like, right in the Chicago area. Yeah, they have that Windy City team, right? Yeah, that's precise. Yeah, I think that's I think that team might be new. Um, yeah. And then there's – so I, I'm, uh, I've am uh, i illicitly uh, Googled this. Uh, there's a team in – so whatever. There's a team in Joliet, which is not far from the city, right? Right. Yeah, it's about an hour and 20 minutes. Right, okay. There's a team uh, called the Windy City Thunderbolts, which looks like it's uh, south. South, yeah. Not super south, but south. Uh, right. There's Schumburg, uh, uh Well, here's a here's a trivia question, Brian Smith. <laughs> uh, right. a trivia question: Schaumburg, uh no longer called the Flyers. Do you know the their current name? Oh no, not at all. Schaumburg Boomers. The Boomers. Yeah. Huh. I don't know the uh, I don't know the the history behind it. And then there's the Rockford Aviators, uh, okay. which is not yeah it's probably what like an hour or something from from uh, the western part of the city. Yeah, maybe a little more. Yeah, maybe a little more. Yeah, I actually went to Beloit last weekend, and oh nice. Um, I watched yeah I watched some Midwest uh, Midwest League baseball and Rockford. I've actually, been there. I've been there a ton of times. To that stadium is that is that not crazy for you? I mean, I guess if it's like what hour? No, it's, yeah. it's pretty palatable. Yeah, um, there have they certainly had gone. Uh, they've had good town. Last year they had, last year they had Miguel Sano and Eddie Rosario. Right. Um, so that was uh, that was fun to watch. I think I saw a game. With but they changed now. They're the who are they? The A's now? Yeah, the A's. They have a. I think probably their biggest prospect now is a guy, a third base prospect named Renato Nunez. Who, yeah, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you at this point. I know you're, you're getting back. We're going to talk about that in a second. You're getting back in the game. Right. But, um, but yeah, Renato. I to go to King, I'm going to go to King County soon, but I was sort of waiting for Albert Almora, that you know, Cubs first-round pick last year, to get healthy. Once he gets healthy, I'm going to start doing that a little more because that's, that's only about 40 minutes. To get out there. Yeah, so actually, so the Chicago area is not bad. I know I did a piece – it must have been last summer, because right? I, I, I had gone to a wedding maybe last July or August or something, and I had run into a friend, an old high school friend, who was living yeah. just outside D.C. Or maybe just – he was living in D.C. And he, he said okay. to me, he said, I think D.C. is one of the best places to live if you want to see minor league baseball. Because, because when you're looking for, for access to minor league baseball, it's not necessarily the quantity of teams per se. It's the quantity of leagues to which you have access. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I think Dave, where Dave is is clearly like the best place in the country to live for that. Right. That's of course you're talking about uh, Fangrass managing editor Dave Cameron, who lives in Winston Salem, and that yeah that that stretch, I forget the highway. It's like 
don't know if it's 84 or 82 or whatever it's called. It's you got like I think you have four leagues all within an hour and a half of each other or something. And uh, yeah, I lived down there when I I worked for Baseball America one summer and lived down there, and it's it's I mean you can go to a game different team seven days a week all summer long. It's awesome. Right. So that, that's clearly a great place to live. Do you, uh, so actually, I put in. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if my methodology was perfect, but it was. I was not going to be any more rigorous than than, than I was. So uh, what I found was that actually, uh, yeah, that that area down there is excellent. Um, DC DC actually is pretty good. Uh, if you live in a certain place in the Boston suburbs, like south of the Boston suburbs. That's actually not bad if you can get it. Cause oh you, yeah, you can get it to, to Double A, uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, pretty easily, which is where it's a that's a that's the Eastern League. You can get Triple A in Pawtucket, which is not far away. You can get um, uh, New York New York Penn League with the Little Spinners, um, and then you can also get, which oughtn't be ignored, you can get Cape Cod League baseball, which I think is which right. is nice too. Because a lot of those guys, uh, I don't know the exact percentages. But I know I did I did some re, uh, research last summer where like something like 80% of Cape Cod League MVPs go on to have major league careers, which seems like pretty strong to me. Yeah, I wrote about the Cape for I don't know a few summers, and that was always that was a great league to cover because you always get you know I think I I covered it when base, when Buster Posey was in there, and the year before it was Ryan Braun was terrible there. Um, but it's always, I mean, the first round of college players is always about 70% Cape guys, it seems like. So for whom, wait, so for whom are you, uh, for whom are you covering the Cape League then? I, re- I, I remember the baseball perspective, I, I uh, did rankings the year of Buster Posey's. Um, and then I think before that was when I was at the baseball analyst blog. And so, and so you did you did it for both those places, or? Yeah, I mean, alternate or different years as I sort of got older. But the the one big year was 2007, I think, with the baseball perspective. Yeah. So were you just like were you camped out in the Cape then? No, it was all uh, it was all calling coaches and uh, and scouts out there and doing it far away. I'm actually never seen a Cape game. It's it's one of those things on on the baseball bucket list kind of because that's it's an awesome place. I love the Cape, but I've just never been there uh, since I've been old enough to actually think about going to one of those games. Well, you, you know, the one of the great things about it, right, is that uh, it's free. All the games are free. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's a real excellent thing. I, I know that, you know, so um, in, in terms of baseball – Maybe one of the disadvantages of living in Madison is there's no professional baseball in town. You know, I got to go like hour 15 minutes east to see the Brewers, and then like maybe right. 50 minutes south to see Beloit. Those are the two closest. You got the Mallards, right? But you got the Mallards. I mean, the, it's a it's a really uh, cool experience going to the Mallards games. Um, I mean, first of all, uh, from the fan experience, they get 6,000 plus on average at Mallards games. Wow, which is more than all but 22, I think, minor league teams last year. Um, yeah, which in itself is cool. It's more than twice the next uh, um, collegiate summer wood bat league, which is also a Northwoods league team. 
Um, but they, I mean, they draw, it, the, the draw is excellent. But besides that. I mean, for, for a very long time, Northwoods, I would say, was probably the number two of those summer league teams in terms of prospects. I think, I mean, it's, there's gotten to be so many leagues that I don't think there's as many pockets of talent as there used to be, but it's a good league. I mean, there's always some good players. Yeah, sure. And, uh, the, uh, yeah, the Northwoods League has produced, for example, Kurt, uh, Curtis Granderson's come through here. Max Scherzer's come through here. Uh, Jordan I, Zimmerman. Jordan Zimmerman. And I think what, what I've found to be the case generally is you look at the guys in the Cape League, and yeah. usually the guys in the Cape League, or, or a lot of them, I should say, they played in the Northwoods League their freshman, sophomore year. They played right. their freshman, sophomore year, uh, and then they end up – you know, junior year there in the Cape League, or maybe freshman year in, in Northwoods League, and then sophomore, sophomore junior league in the Cape League. Yeah, if you want to, an easy way to create like future draft tracking lists is you look at the guys who got Cape invites after their freshman year, and that means that they're a good prospect inevitably every time because usually they they wait to see how those kids do sophomore year. I assume you're talking about Jamie Dentona. Are you talking about Jamie Dentona? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. I, <laughs> The person that came to mind actually was Brandon Crawford. Was uh, was that guy? I remember when I wrote about the Cape that year, thinking there was a 100% chance that Brandon Crawford was going to be the top prospect for that year. It just that was the buzz, and then he was horrible. His that after his sophomore year at the Cape, and I think he ended up being like ninth or tenth as far as the prospects on the list. Oh, so you saw? So you? So well, not you, again. We talk about you know CC, but from your discussions with. Uh, uh, people involved with the league there, there was a there yeah. was a lot of enthusiasm for for Crawford. Going into the going into the summer and then just crazy disappointment. And so he didn't so he didn't he didn't play well that year in the Cape League. No, no. But he's. But he, I mean, that's it's funny how that stuff works because, like I said, I mean, I re, I think if we'd have to look it up, but Ryan Braun's summer there was historically bad. Now, now I'm curious as to. To how sensitive you were, and I'll be totally forgiving on this issue, but, you know, on the one hand, you have the slash test. On the other hand, you have the underlying stuff. And I'm curious when you, when you would have been following, uh, when you would have been following these Cape League performances, w- would you have been sensitive to that or would it have been, or would it have been more, uh, you know, general, a little bit looking at stats maybe that, uh, become reliable a little late, uh, a little later? I think what you do, especially when I was going to call a coach or something, a coach is going to talk about a player who's doing well most of the time. It's A coach isn't going to, unless you really get him to bring up, a guy who's struggling and talk about all his strengths. So I would, I think I would look at the stat line, sort of see who's doing well, and then bring that guy up and say, is he a prospect, is he not a prospect? And then you sort of go through it that way. And then at the end you can say of the guys who are, Slumping right now. Who, who, uh, why, who's the guy who you can't understand why he's slumping? Who's, who's playing, uh, below their talent level? And that was sort of the way to get in there. And that would have been Braun, I mean, that would have been Braun at that point? For sure. And, and that was true with Crawford, too. Is the, the, everyone knew they were really talented. It was just, uh, you know, those guys, when they get to wood after, after playing with aluminum for so long, I think it's uh, for some guys it's an easy transition, and for other it gets in their heads. And and that uh, now it should be said, uh, Brandon Crawford's only 26 still now. Yeah. 
uh, and he's having he's having a great start to his season. He's got a one yeah, he's, four, he's, he's done well for himself, I think. He's already been worth almost a win and a half uh, in in wow. uh, hundred plate appearances. Right. Um, he's already eclipsed his home run total from last season. Yeah, uh, that's that's an exciting player, and I think that he generally has a, a pretty good defensive reputation as well. Uh, yeah, he has a great arm. I, re- I I remember seeing his arm in person, and he's it's incredible. Um, so so let's so we sort of gesture to it here, but so I'd like to make the point here that you you've been doing this for a while, right? I mean, you're because you're not that old now. I I don't even think you're thirty yet. No, I'm 26. I'm about to turn 27. Right, so that's pretty young. And you've already had the opportunity, essentially, to ascend ascend the ranks in prospect writing, <laughs> and then leave for a while, and then and then return, and then leave for a while. And I don't know how many times you've left and returned, but you're a lot. Yeah, a bunch of times you've done it a lot. <laughs> you know, you've done sort of like a late like a late career Roger Clemens, but you're only 26 years old. <laughs> yeah. So so where so where are you so let's let's say first of all briefly where you are right now you're writing for Fangraphs what are you doing writing you doing? for Fangraphs yeah uh, I am going to be writing biweekly just uh, two articles a month about uh, rookies and uh, tracking over the course of the year how they adjust to major league pitching how pitching adjusts to them or vice versa if they're a pitcher. Um, and I think, I mean, I think what's interesting is that we write so much about these guys as their prospects, and then they get to the majors and they sort of just become part of that system where we write about them as much as any other major league player. And I think when Dave and I talked about doing this, that was part of the discussion was was continuing uh, to track these guys who we've spent. You know, we have three guys now at Fangraphs. Uh, that do prospects, and for us to just then leave those players be when they get to the majors, or just to write about them as much as every other player, that seems a little strange, I guess. And that was sort of the, the one of the ideas behind the series. So you're so you're looking to you're essentially looking to bridge uh, bridge that gap, bridge that tra- look at that transition from from prospect to to everyday, or you know, for for, yeah, for, exactly. for player for um, Position player, everyday type player, or something like everyday for pitcher. You know, whether it's a starter or guy assuming a, you know, an integral relief relief role, you're you're looking to sort of cover that transition. Right. But let's all right. So that's what you're doing now. Right. I, you you. I know at one point because I actually uh, I know you had written for baseball analysts, and uh, you might you might take some pleasure in this. I uh, I googled baseball analysts. <laughs> And um, mm-hmm. I don't know what the the, the correct uh, web term is for this, but um, you know if you if you if you call up a, a website, you Google a website. There's like a two sentence description or two line description of what it is. If you yeah. if you right now if you Google baseball analysts, the first uh, the first hit is baseballanalyst.com, the baseball analyst, and the and the description is Rich Letterer and Brian Smith contribute daily to this part web blog, part science project. Keeping you up to date with the day's statistics of interest. Um, that, was, that was nice of me for Rich to, uh, or that was nice of him for Rich to keep me on the <laughs> tagline. Well, it, uh, it, uh, it does appear as though there has not been a lot of content from the site no, of late. No, it, Rich, Rich stopped as well. Yeah, but it, it was uh, it was pretty valuable uh, for some time, and it was home to 
for example, to you, uh, to Mark Hewlett, who, of course, uh, has, has mm-hmm. um, done prospect work for Fangrass for some time. Uh, Sky Andrzejczyk, who I think is I, – I, I did not research this at all, but I, I know he was with SI for a while, I believe. Uh, or do something like that. Uh, Dave Allen, of course. Who na- Dave Allen's like a professor now. Dave Allen was doing right. – uh, when he was writing for – he wrote – because he moved over to Fangraphs as well or was doing both. And he uh, he was doing like really amazing stuff like on the uh, – like the intersection between mathematics and ecology. Like he was doing like really, um, really sophisticated modeling of like e- ecological – like microecology or whatever. I, don't, I can't even explain it. Yeah, he's a, he's a smart guy. Yeah, and Jeremy Greenhouse, uh, of course, was doing a lot of great pitch effects stuff. I don't, I don't, I actually mm-hmm. don't know know what he's up to now, uh, but he's done no, great I pitch effects. No, I don't either. And uh, and then there was you. There was you who apparently was important enough to make it into the uh, two line description on Google. Well, we started it, Rich and I together. Um, we started it. I I don't know, maybe two thousand two, two thousand three, something in there, and. Uh, which is which? It should be said is um, a ten years ago. It means that you were, I mean, in some states, not even uh, eligible for a driver's license at that point. Yeah, it was, it was, I think it was basically right around when I uh, when I got my driver's license. So, so I, I mean, I might have asked you this question, and if I have, I've answered. I, I have, I forgot the answer um, because it should be mentioned too. Before we get to that, I was looking up your. Uh, uh, post you've contributed to Fangrass. You have two uh, from April now of uh, 2013. Uh, <laughs> and then the piece before that, this will give people an idea of how long ago it was. Um, the, the title of the post is Florida Marlins Farm System Discussion, uh, which because it's the Florida Marlins, it should give right. everyone a sense. Uh, but yeah, it was that was November 30th, 2010. So that's uh, I mean, two approximately. What was that? Two, two and a half years between. Two and a half years, those. yeah. Yeah, um, but now we're going back to to this. So you, so you had analysts. You were there for a while. I'm trying to. Mm-hmm. What, what are all the times you retired? Can you give us just? Can you just outline the times you retired from writing about prospects? <laughs> well, the the quick track is I went from baseball analyst to baseball perspective, and then I was in college and got offered an internship with Baseball America. And so I stopped all the internet writing and did that for a summer. And then I think went back to baseball prospectus after a little break. So that was one retirement. And then um, did that. Um, and what year would that have been, approximately? That would have been like 2005, 2006. Okay. So somewhere in there. And then um, it's all very hazy. I Somewhere along the way, I think I stopped the baseball perspective. There was another little break around maybe 2000, late 2007. Um, started at Fangraphs, worked briefly for uh, MajorLeagueBaseball.com, um, covered the College World Series for them the year Fresno State won. So that would have been 2008. And then did a little more for Fangraphs until I got my first job out of college uh, and then uh, made it as long as I could until I told uh, the Dave that I uh, it was too much. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it well anymore. So I decided to stop. And, that, and that was, sorry, that was what year? What was that? That was the. Uh, yeah, I mean that would have been in 2010. 2010, and you were 
maybe I, I can uh, I can deduct uh, uh, this statement. Deduct, deduct, mm-hmm. redact. I can redact this statement. Uh, but I think you were doing something with soybeans. Is that right? Yeah, and I, I still am. I'm an agriculture commodity trader at the uh, Board of Trade in Chicago. Okay. Now, but so so now you're writing again, though. Has anything changed that allowed you to come back, or or have you just uh, realized that you're if you're writing on a um, reasonable enough schedule, you could you could fit it into your life? Yeah, I suppose more than anything, I've just it's reached a level of stability that. Um, if I make sure to not overcommit, which I've done before, uh, write, promising more than I should to sites and saying I'd write more than I should, if I if I maintain this small amount of writing and uh, Dave was cool with it, then I was excited to get back on board. Well, excellent. Yeah, and I, it's exciting for me. Now, what, what do you think was responsible? I mean, you sort of hinted at it. Do you think that there's anything... Um, about it, I don't know if it's about prospect prospect analysis. If it's about and, and this would be a larger issue, but uh, providing content um, w- for in an electronic setting uh, that that has gotten you so that you become um, almost entirely immersed in it, and then even despite your relative youth. You leave it, and then you decide you can come back, and then you leave. Do you think there's? I mean, do you think there's anything? Is it? Is it? Is it about the form at some level, or the medium, or is it about you, or is it a combination of things? I definitely think it's about me. I think. I mean, I think the biggest thing to blame would just being, be being a fickle, twenty-something, um, and having a lot change. But I think another. I, I I would say that another part is that. I do go through times where sort of I get turned off maybe a little bit from the sort of niche sabermetric side of the Internet that we find ourselves in and um, just find myself needing to step away from it and cool down a little bit and then, you know, fall in love all over again. So so it it is sort of interesting, right, because on the one hand – you, you discussed that maybe there's a sort of niche, there's a, there's a, a sabermetric niche. Um, I wonder how you feel though, because it, uh, on the other hand, it seems as though that there has been, especially as time goes by, there, there's constantly a marriage between there um, is for sure between the scouting side and, and, and the uh, analytical side. Would you? I mean, and would I would you, say there's also there's also a marriage between. Um, general baseball analysis and the sabermetric side. I mean, it's. I think when I started, it was a total corner of the internet, and now it's part of every big company's uh, analysis. So maybe it, maybe it's wrong to even call it a niche anymore. It's just uh, some of the way that baseball is discussed. Yeah. So by by way of some example, I think it's related. Is that tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken? Um, so tomorrow, so you may or may not be aware that, for reasons that are not entirely clear, um, this past November I became a member of the uh, yeah of the Baseball Writers Association. So tomorrow, right. uh, tomorrow I'll be talking with uh, Mike Shannon, uh, radio voice of the St. Louis Cardinals. Okay. Um, 
who I, I don't even know if he has any thoughts on sabermetry. I think he probably has zero. And yet for some reason right. I'm allowed to talk to him. And perhaps more than that, uh, certainly more than would have been the case, I'm, I'm excited to talk to him because people seem to really like him. Or And I don't know uh, I mean, for a variety of reasons they like him, but uh, – it's it, in that, but that's the, the you know it should, it illustrates the fact that the, this is not something that would have happened certainly when I joined Fangraphs that was not even a consideration and, and oh joined, not at all and you were you were part of the sort of um, uh, baseball analysis community the same metric community before I was and I, so I'm sure you saw even uh, more stratification yeah I mean I think I was. You know, I was influenced by Aaron Gleeman when he started. I, I think I, I remember when he started his blog and he, he was, he's just a couple years older than I am. And that was, that was a big part of my inspiration was seeing, oh, here's a teenage kid that is combining baseball and writing, which were two things I loved. And that, that got me into it. But the idea that it was going to be picked up by, you know, ESPN and SI and all the, all the places that somehow we've been lucky enough to have our stuff run at is crazy. Yeah. So let's talk about. Uh, uh, we mentioned a little bit already, but you're doing a you're doing a column now, a biweekly column called uh, Rated Rookies, mm-hmm. and you, you're trying to sort of uh, bridge this gap. You're trying to look at players who are still rookie eligible um, for yeah. the season, um, but who are contributing at the major league level. And I was wondering, I wonder if you talk about, you mentioned a little bit already, maybe talk more about it and talk about it as something maybe that you feel like has been missing from prospect analysis. Well, I would say that, I'd say this in the first post, the inspiration for the series was, um, it was a series on Grantland, I want to say two years ago, by a guy named Sebastian Prudy who wrote about the NBA, and he wrote a rookie report and he did a really good job of combining in a very short paragraph with every player. He'd tell you uh, statistical things that you probably didn't have any idea on. He'd tell you uh, scouting things about the player, and then he'd have video to perfectly sort of summarize the the whole paragraph, everything he said. And it was it, I found it so compelling. And then he left to go work within the NBA, and they're just, I mean, a lot of people do that well, but there was that specific article I just missed, and, I, and I've and i thought about it, I think, ever since he left. And so when Dave asked me if we had any ideas, if I was going to come back, that was the first thing that jumped in my head. is like, ah, oh, someone's got to be doing what Sebastian was doing. And so and so you, you decided to apply it to baseball then? Correct, yeah. And, uh, I mean, I... I I doubt I can do it as well, but try to try to get um, graphs and video because we can't use YouTube videos like NBA writers can. Uh, but try to use uh, pitch effects, uh, snapshots, and gifs and everything we can to sort of show a little bit of what the stats explain. I, I, just as an aside, it's interesting you mentioned. So you said. Prudy is now working with within the NBA at some level. Yeah, I can't quite remember the team, but he. Uh, I know when he was writing for Grantland, he was an assistant coach of an NBBL, NBA DL team, and then I think uh, he left to work full time within an organization. Because this is something that um, I believe has been 
has been noted before is that uh, where a lot of baseball information and analysis is freely available, widely available, um, it's a it's sort of become a uh, a practice uh, in terms of advanced analysis within um, within the NBA that as soon as anyone exhibits any talent for so doing for doing so, um, they're snapped up. Yeah, that person's hired immediately, and yeah, which I which um, for them is is probably great because uh, sure, even though it's probably not a lot of money, it represents um, an income of some sorts doing uh, you know analysis. Uh, but on the with the the um, on the down the downside is that that information is now proprietary, and that sounds like. What's going on with Prudy at this point? He, he exhibited an ability to do this thing nicely, and then and now we can't enjoy it anymore except for the one team that hired him. Uh, right. I think you get that feeling whenever you read a really good NBA writer. It's, it's, it's sort of a ticking clock until right. – I mean, John Hollinger asked it a long time, but I think everyone knew eventually that that was going to be no more, and I think Zach Lowe right now is a similar example where he's – He's a great writer right now. We, I think, I love everything he writes, but I also sort of know at some point someone's going to scoop him up and make sure that not everyone can see what he's doing. Right, and I and um, uh, some illicit googling uh, reveals that uh, it's the Oklahoma City Thunder who have hired Prudy. <laughs> that makes uh, sense. Yeah, they're now very, they're very sabermetric. Uh, right. So, so, but uh, so you're doing these pieces though. Now, what do you? Um, you, you mentioned a couple of things you're looking for, the things that you're borrowing from Prudy. Uh, part mm-hmm. of it will be pitch effects uh, s- stuff. Part of it will be sort of video based. W- what do you think is what do you think is unique about that transition? I guess, and the thing that you're trying to isolate the transition from the minor leagues to the major leagues. What, what's the, what do you think is the sort of thing you're trying to to isolate and um, and evaluate? Uh, specifically, I think the adjustments that players are making, I think what, what separates players that have immediate major league success and players that, uh, take a, take a while is that a guy like Matt Adams, who I wrote about, uh, in the column, he, he has already shown a really good ability that within an at bat, if you show him the same pitch in the same location twice, the second time he's gonna hit it. And that's not, and then by contrast, Aaron Hicks, you know, pitchers are happy to challenge him, and right now he's just, if he sees a pitch on the first pitch of an at-bat and then he sees it on the fourth, he's missing both times. And and then when a player season gets a little longer and he faces pitchers for a second time, then we can see how a pitcher, uh, established major league veteran, makes alterations and how that hitter does, I think that's going to tell us a lot about uh, more granular examples of how players adjust during a season. I think that'll tell us a lot about their future success. Well, let's talk about Adams first of all. Uh, Adams yeah. is um, – he's not old necessarily, um, but as, as a 24-year-old um, – It always held him back from being a top prospect. Right, right. He's been he's, he's sort of above the league age. He's been, yeah, slightly, slightly, not very old, slightly old, and also the fact that he's probably limited to first base. Right? I mean, does that seem fair? For sure. Yeah. So, so you have those two constraints. Um, <laughs> he has done. So he has taken zero plate appearances in the minor leagues this season. Right. Um, 
he he but he only has 27 plate appearances at the major league level so mm-hmm. he he's really not playing a lot the thing is uh when he does play now it should be mentioned his slash his slash line is not even it's like not even a real slash line he's currently right. he currently has a 356 wrc plus he's has produced over half uh, a win above replacement in just 27 plate appearances he's batting 542 He's got a 625 Babbitt. These are not reasonable numbers. They're not real numbers. Yeah, they're not real numbers. But even at, even if you look um, a little bit lower and and remembering remembering that he's been used, that he's started sporadically, and besides that, he's made pinch hit appearances. Uh, he's he struck out in fewer than 20 percent of those plate appearances. He's walked in more than 10 percent of them. Um, those are good uh, indicators of uh, offensive. Yeah. Um, offensive talent, especially given the context of his usage. I, and he hits a lot of he hits a lot of fly balls. I mean, he has so far. I know it's a small example, but he he elevates the ball and he's big enough that he's very strong. And when he elevates the ball, it's generally going to be a good thing. Right. So 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 what do you do? So first of all, in terms of his talent level now, what what is your assessment of that? And then from there, go 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 to um, what his current usage pattern, the, the Cardinals' usage of him, what what we what we think that sort of thing might be doing to a player like Matt Adams. Yeah, it'll be interesting to tell because the Cardinals uh, brought him up this season, I think, just because they needed to have that bat in the lineup. But with Alan Craig at first and the outfield uh, loaded across the board. They didn't really have a spot for Adams to play, so they just said, you know, we'll get one of these four guys a day off and we'll play Adams. Now, he's been on the DL uh, the past 15 days, so that's sort of another reason that his plate appearances have been limited. But even the whole season, he's never going to get the chance to start every day. I think that's probably going to be something that happens next year for him. But I do think that he's um, showing the Cardinals enough that they're going to have to figure out a way to get that bat in the lineup next year because he's going to be a good first baseman. I think he shows a lot of things at the plate that uh, that will lend to a good stat line over 600 plate advances. Now, uh, and this is not just sabermetric orthodoxy, but the general sentiment within, you know, uh, uh, analytical, or, uh, you know, anyone who's talking about baseball is if you have a young player, you need to give him at-bats. Yeah. And um, even if you take into account his his DL stint, Adams has not been getting them. Um, no. Typically, this is uh, typically the Cardinals, especially in recent years, the Mazeliak years, with uh, Luno, uh, you know, running their draft. Uh, they, um, of course, he's he's gone to Houston now, but they're still regarded as um, uh, relatively savvy in this regard. Um, I, I don't necessarily know about Mike Bassini, manager Mike Bassini's reputation, um, so far as this is concerned. But uh, do, do you do you feel like this is mismanagement, or are, is their hand forced at some level? Well, I think we actually see it even more than Adams. I mean, Trevor Rosenthal was a good starting pitching prospect. He competed for the fifth spot in the rotation, lost it to Shelby Miller. They put him in the bullpen. Same thing happened with Joe Kelly. Instead of sending Joe Kelly to AAA and keeping him a starter, they put him in the bullpen. I think I think what we see here is 
the, the Cardinals view their window as right now and sort of different than the Washington Nationals thought last year instead of waiting and massaging all these players and developing them maybe how they would traditionally. They need to get them on the field. They need to have their best 25 players on the roster, and they need to capitalize on a chance to win a World Series. And, so, you know, I think we, I think if we look granularly at each player, no, Matt Adams probably isn't being developed in a way that's going to lend to the most success for him. But I can't fault the Cardinals too much for that when they're just doing what they can to win a World Series. I think I think it would be a mistake to condemn them for one thing and praise them for another. The Cardinals seem to have a tradition of uh, of leaving players in the minor leagues really for as long as they can. Um, some players who might be considered fringe at some level, but it's produced for them um, uh, sort of half prospects who've become yeah. legitimate major leaguers, like Alan Craig, Alan Craig. Like David <laughs> Freeze, like John Jay. Uh, I think you know that Matt Carpenter is probably somewhere. Uh, he's probably part of that conversation. Sure. Is this? Uh, I mean, have you, have you recognized this as a sort of? Um, um, an organizational trait, and uh, I don't know, what are your thoughts on it, if so, or if or if not? I think those are guys that when Jeff Luno was there, uh, part of the organization, he, he targeted that type of player in the draft. He targeted guys that he knew could hit, and um, he wasn't necessarily going to worry about the position. I think if you go back and you look at David Freese's scouting report out of college, it was he can hit, but He's not going to be a third baseman. Maybe he can be a first baseman, and that's, you know, what they said about Alan Craig as well. And um, those type of players, you really have to prove it in the minor leagues. You have to show that you can hit um, to get a major league job because if a team's going to live with a bad defensive player, they need a lot of offense. Now, to David Freese's credit, he's turned into a fine Major League third baseman, maybe a little below average, but nothing, nothing bad at all. And uh, those, I think just what happens with those guys is that since they're not top draft picks and since they're not real athletes, they just need to show that they can hit until the very end. So, so you mentioned Freeze, you mentioned Craig, uh, and, and I think that another, a couple other guys are certainly implied um, in, in your analysis. Uh, yeah. I'm curious as to how you feel about like what what's the difference between those players and a player um, whom the Cardinals decided to trade in Brett Wallace. It, I mean, obviously Wallace uh, he came up as a third baseman. Uh, I don't know if he's if he's played into innings there as uh, this season as a as a major leaguer. I, I know right. he was playing there during spring training. Is is it just that they knew they could they could get something? For Brett Wallace, and that's why they traded him. Or do you think that um, Lonell, Mazeliak, etc., might have identified something about Brett Wallace that uh, was different than the rest of the players? It would be interesting. No, I, I think that's a hard thing to know. But I do think that Wallace fits in with that type of player. I think he was certainly part of that group of player that Jeff Luno targeted in the draft. And I do think that when the Cardinals uh, went to the trade market, it was probably a combination between who's going to yield us the player we need and um, who do our scouts think 
will be the worst of this group of players. And, you know, we don't know how those internal discussions went, but if they had a scout say of David Freese, Alan Craig and Brett Wallace, let's trade Brett Wallace, then that guy deserves a promotion. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I'm like, uh, I, I just uh, leafing through the, the Baseball America Prospect Handbook from 2009. I don't know if this would have been uh, represented your time with them or not. I think you might have been a little earlier. Yeah, I think so. Um, but it, curiously, though, you know, and looking through, and so, for example, number one, you see Colby Rasmus. Right, that's the number one player. Mm-hmm. Now, this was not necessarily a Cardinals, um, a Cardinals organization that was uh, thought to have a very, uh, a very good organization, uh, or a very good yeah. uh, minor league system. Um, it was thought to have, I don't know, the, I don't have the exact rankings here, but I know that it's been unique in recent years that their organization has been considered elite, uh, which it is now. Their minor league system was considered elite, and in fact, the uh, the rankings reveal. Um, this makes for good radio. I recognize that, but I'm looking through, <laughs> and the St. Louis Cardinals are ranked uh, well eighth in this case. It says this is the first top ten ranking for them since 1999. So yeah, so so not not elite, but uh, top third. Um, we see we see Rasmus over one. Of course, he's had mixed results. Brett Wallace uh, number two, uh, mixed results. Chris Perez has become a closer, which you can debate the value of that. There's Jess Todd. Uh, Brian Anderson, Clayton Mortensen have seen little of them. Daryl Jones, nothing of him. Jason Mott is a closer. He's good. Mm-hmm. But then number nine is when you see Dave Freeze. Uh, number yeah. 10, you see Pete Cosma, who's contributed a little bit at the major league level. John Jay, who is the their starting center fielder, should be noted, starting center fielder for a team uh, that was excellent last year, uh, number 12. Jaime Garcia is number 13. Mitchell Boggs is yeah. 14. And Lance Lynn, who's one of their top starters, is 15. Wow. Uh, that's a, that's a curious uh, – to me, it's a curious grouping. I mean, I guess it, in part it's a it's a testament to the difficulty with which uh, it's – you know uh, the difficulty of assessing prospects. But it, it also seems to me as though that it was some magic that has existed, and we maybe we'll assume. They, I, think, I think they do a phenomenal job of um, – scouting players that aren't athletes. And I think when prospects are rated, sort of in the linkings that you read, very often athleticism is a huge part of it. And I think for, um, as a macro thing, that's a good thing. Athleticism should be a part of prospect rankings. But I do think we should recognize that the Cardinals are an organization that are really good, at, or that were really good at that type of scouting. Yeah, and it seemed as though the, Card- the Cardinals were excellent. Now, let's look at another player. Lance Lynn is a really good example of a pitcher. We talked about a lot of hitters, but Lance Lynn was a pitcher who was not a good athlete, had some college success at Ole Miss, and he's uh, he's, he's turned out well for him. It, now let's, let's talk about uh, – actually, we'll, we want to sort of group these two guys together. Uh, one of them is another Cardinals prospect, one who has not really had a problem getting – uh, receiving um, notoriety within uh, the prospect analyst community, and that's Shelby Miller. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about him in the same context as another guy who throws mostly two pitches, and that's Tony Singrani. Singrani yeah. has not really received a lot of attention until, well, 
it depends what you want to say about attention, but uh, he's received some attention for having success in the minor leagues. Never really received a lot of um, notoriety in terms of uh, projection uh, until right until he struck out. What like in his first start was like 14 of the 17 batters he faced at his first okay. start with Triple A uh, Louisville. Yeah. Um, I, which is not really anything. If strike out 14 to 17, you face. That's not something you can do without having some kind of talent. Um, For sure. I'm curious your thoughts on on a player like Shelby Miller who has has really sat fastball curveball uh, with some with success uh, so far early on in his major league career versus Tony Singrani who's been fastball and I guess what's now called a curveball. I, I think he used to throw a slider, but now it's it's a different it's a slightly different pitch than he's thrown in the past. Um, Good. And honestly, has had most of the success with the fastball. I think he's got like a 10 or 11 swings, percent swing strike rate just with that pitch, which is unheard of. Um, yeah. What do we What do we learn from looking at these two guys? One in Miller, who's been highly touted for some time. The other in Sigrani, who has not. They're both having success with with two pitches, though. Yeah, it's a very rare thing. I, I looked into it for one of the articles, and I mean, you can count. It's about a dozen players in the last five, six years that have, over the course of a full season, thrown only two pitches 90% of the time or more. I mean, you get you get that with knuckleballers. You get that with sinker ballers, sinker slider guys like Derek Lowe. And Bartolo Colon, um, maybe. Is Colon somewhere on the list? Does he throw his fastball all the time? Oh, he wasn't? Yeah. Well, the uh, thing, the, and well, that was an interesting thing was because you sort of need to get that data out of there where there's guys that throw a four-seam fastball and a two-seam fastball because those are two different pitches, and I think in the case of someone like Cologne, he uses them differently. But right. um, what's interesting about Shelby and Tony is that they Because both you're friends with throw, them? Is that why Shelby yeah, and Tony? Because you're BF. They're my friends. <laughs> <laughs> is they only have four-seam fastball. They, they don't have that two-seamer. Tony's a little better, I would say, at... Tony Singrani is better at... <laughs> changing the velocity of his fastball he he'll sort of he can go from 90 to 96 with it we've seen already in three starts and I think he kind of uses that four seam pitch as two different pitches um but Shelby's Shelby Miller's just he's he's really just thrown about uh 72 percent of the time we're seeing fastballs in the low 90s uh and then 25 percent of the time we're seeing uh, his curveball and that's that's about it, and he's yet he's had a lot of success with it so far. And I would think, I looking at him, I do think that he could have success with it. What, what do you think about uh, how he's throwing it? What do you think that they could give him success? Where where maybe um, traditional wisdom, accepted wisdom, might say, well, two pitches, that's a relief pitcher. Right. Well, I mean, what you need to if you're going to throw fastball, forcing fastball, and a curveball, the biggest thing is that. You have to, you have no margin for error against hitters the opposite hand of you. So for Shelby Miller, left-handed hitters, he's got to be really careful. He can't miss because typically that's who you would throw a changeup against. Your third pitch goes to the opposite hand of you. And, uh, Shelby just doesn't have that, that other offering. So he can't hang a curveball to them because they're going to see that pitch extremely well and they're going to be able to hit it. And with his fastball, he's got to live on that outside corner and then be really careful when he goes inside. And luckily, he's got a pretty good catcher behind the plate that's going to help him. 
When you, when you say when you say good catcher behind the plate, because he's he's calling the right pitches, or because he's able to 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 frame pitches or dig pitches out of the dirt, or all of the, all those things. I would say I think all of those things. But the biggest thing uh, as far as Shelby Miller's success is going to be calling the right pitches. I, I don't think Shelby Miller's at the point where he can shake off Yadier Molina much. And so it's going to be Molina's job to say against left-handed hitters, when are we going to go inside to th- to show them something else? When are we going to dare to throw a curveball? And uh, it's Yadier's job to pick the right times, and it's Shelby's job to uh, make those pitches and hit his spots. Right. Yeah. And so, and, but they're clearly both having success. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the the, the fastball in the low nineties because that's what. Um, I, I'd seen I, – I feel like I had seen – maybe I'm, I'm talking out of school here, but I feel like I had seen reports that he sat mid-90s and right. I don't know if mid-90s includes 93. Uh, I think more 94 and 96 with mid-90s. Uh, I saw him last spring in Jupiter um, mm-hmm. uh, during spring training. I saw him this spring. If, in fact, I'll tell you, I saw him this spring in the backfields – at Jupiter uh, for spring training, Shelby Miller. Well, I didn't necessarily know it was him. I saw a pitcher with Miller on his back. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you know, during spring training, the guys share numbers. Yeah. You know, like three guys with the same number. Um, I didn't have a I didn't have a sheet. And then I saw I saw the numbers on his fastball. I saw ninety nine two. That's what I saw. And I right. said I was like I, I thought to myself. I mean, I I had a considerable self doubt. I said. Is this is this Shelby Miller is throwing because he's he's sitting ninety ninety two this couldn't possibly this couldn't be Shelby Miller that I've heard about um, a, 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 this year as a major leaguer he's he's been right about ninety three so that that's that's an improvement over what I saw and who knows maybe he was working on something maybe he was maybe that was a two seamer I was seeing that he was just trying fooling around with no and, I think I, I mean I think you're right I think there were a lot of reports out there that he was I. I think someone I remember reading somewhere that someone saw him and he was in the he was in the eighties a decent amount I right. think, but he has been able to show ninety five a couple times this year and he I think he's got that in, in him in him but maybe it was a conscious decision where he's gonna he's gonna throw in that ninety to ninety two range a little more. Well, that's the thing though, right? Because you could say, what is this guy? It's not even just a question that, like you know we see all the time like a guy. Uh, moves from st- st- uh, starting rotation to relief, and you know you see all different sorts of jumps. Sometimes you see zero, sometimes you see five miles per hour jump, right? Right. Like yeah. I know that when Tommy Hunter last year on the Orioles, when he moved from uh, from from the rotation to the bullpen, his fastball jumped um, a, a great deal. Yeah. Um, now part of that is the guy can uh, is is not worried about saving himself. Uh, part of it is the guy maybe if he's if he's decides to go with more of a maxed out delivery um he can go with that i know but the, so that that's the thing right though for starters though like when you say miller can hit 95 if you read early reports on miller it says he hits 95 is he hitting 95 comfortably i mean that that's a question you have to ask right yeah is he is he commanding that fastball when he's when he's hitting 95 right because as soon as you as soon as a pitcher starts to effort um, and I'm using two effort. That's a verb. It's not. A, it's not a great. I don't think that really exists outside of baseball. But when he starts two effort, 
Um, and he's looking at, at trying to hit 95, 96. That's going to – I assume it's going to affect – well, two things. One, it's going to affect his command. And then and then the second thing, and it's a secondary consideration for that particular outing, but it's a primary consideration in terms of the, that player's career is, is that going to affect his health? If, if he's – if he's if he's maxing out, if he's uh, exhibiting effort, is he? I'm assuming he's more likely to lose his mechanics. Yeah, we would assume so. But I mean, that's it's one of those things. I think that the value of tracking these guys is that we can see these anecdotal examples of, um, of some players that start uh, messing with their delivery when they throw harder. Some guys start elevating the fastball more, and some guys maybe it leads to injury. I don't think it's anything we can statistically track yet, but if we have, if we start building these anecdotal examples, then at some point we're going to have the sample size to be able to make more declarative statements instead of educated guesses. Right, so in terms of – so so this will be the last thing I ask about. It's uh, We should say it's after 11 now, uh, central time. People, There are people in the world that have to go to bed. You and I are two of them. Uh, you're going to write a bunch more of these rated rookies uh, columns, um, it, it, but you've just mentioned this thing about essentially compiling uh, anecdotal anecdotal um, examples. Is is that sort of is that part of the mission? Do you think? And going forward, will we see like you know like your first week? I think you had a piece on Dan Straley. Your second pe- week, you had a piece on Matt Adams. Is that a one-off sort of thing, or do you do you sort of have in mind that you'll be tracking Dan Straley? and tracking Matt Adams as the season goes along. Yeah, I mean, that's my hope is um, is to be tracking these guys all year long. I, I started a notebook opening day, and uh, eat, there's a page for a bunch of different players, and I'm trying to track each one of their plate appearances and each one of the batters they face. And um, hopefully if I, if I watch enough of them, then I can see one mistake they're making or one thing they're doing really well. And then over the course of the year, we can see if that erodes, if uh, other players start taking advantage of that, or if that's really an elite skill. Well, that's uh, that. What that is is music to my ears. Not like, I don't know, not like, uh, not like a Beethoven, you know, <laughs> but like another not that guy. Good. Yeah, not that good. <laughs> I mean, but decent music though. You know what I mean? Like a lower, like Paganini maybe. I don't know. <laughs> It sounds like Paganini. I don't know. I don't know what Paganini sounds like. Anyway, listen, uh, Brian. I want to say uh, it's been a pleasure to uh, to become reacquainted with you. You were uh, you were not necessarily off the grid, but you were you've been on the fringes of the community for a little while. But I'm glad that you've uh, um, that you've committed to 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 what you have, and I'm excited to see what you produce. Thanks. I'm glad to be back on board with you guys and look forward to hopefully seeing you this summer. Yeah, and uh, maybe we should see uh, we should see a game. At least we could see a game because uh, I live in Madison. That's not we could see a game anywhere really. We could we could go to Windy City. What is it? Windy City Fireballs game or whatever. <laughs> no, I'll meet you in Bel- I'll meet you in Beloit. Oh, you let's go. Hey, listen. I want to tell you about a crazy idea I've developed with a um, a gentleman I've met here in Madison. We have tentative plans, uh, not set in stone, but tentative plans to do a um, an ill-advised doubleheader of uh, Beloit Snappers, of course, uh, Midwest League team for 
the uh, the Oakland A's, and then a and then a Rockford Aviators game, independent league, Frontier League baseball. Ill-advised doubleheader. <laughs> There you go. Maybe hey, do, maybe, not going to not gonna be the best baseball we've ever seen, but yeah, who cares? They'll serve, they'll serve beer. Yeah, <laughs> we will get very, uh, very sleepy by the end of it. Is, 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 <laughs> anyway, yeah. All right, so Brian, uh, thank you very much. Uh, that has been uh, that has been Brian Smith, uh, previously of most websites that you'd ever read, uh, but currently of uh, and exclusively, I think, of Fangraphs. Is that is that a fact? Exclusively. Yeah, and uh, and soybean commodity trading. Yeah, there you go. Ever happened again before? That's Brian Smith. I'm Carson Sestouli, uh, and this has been Fangraphs Audio.